But let me just pray for us. God, we do lift up these junior high and high school kids. We know statistically that much of a worldview is shaped by the time a, a kid is done with high school. And we know that you are powerful to speak into these students' lives, to help them see the world as it really is, to help them know that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we pray that you would use this week to that end, that you would be just magnified in the eyes of these kids as they come to know you more through this time. We also pray that we would have a ton of fun and that it would just be a time of relational bonding, that friendships would be made that bring you honor and glory. And Lord, we pray for this time too. Would you make it fruitful for your kingdom in our hearts, in our lives? Would we be challenged to love our neighbors more and encouraged to seek you more boldly? And may we be just blessed to see you as you are and to, to hunger for you to greater degrees. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that quickens our hearts to understand your word. And we pray that you would Use this time to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, open your Bible with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. Hopefully by now that's no surprise. You're probably getting very used to that. And then in a couple weeks we'll be done and we'll change it up on you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. And out of curiosity this week, I pulled up a Google search. I don't know if you've ever done anything like this, but I pulled up the homepage to do a search because I wanted to see what Google would autofill when I put a couple of words in. I had a suspicion, and so I put in the words, how to be, and what do you think the word that Google inserted as the top of the autofill list was? How to be what? Take a, take a crack at it. How to be what? Self-something? Rich? Happy. It was happy. How to be happy. And I suspected that would be the case, and uh, I was right. My hypothesis proved correct, which is not a common phenomenon. Uh, Because our culture values happiness so much, so highly. And yet the irony is so few people are happy. I mean, if you have to go to the Google search bar to figure out how to be happy... You're in trouble, I think. The search results produced more than 7 million hits in 0.3 of a second. 7 million hits. I didn't look through them, but 7 million tips and tricks for being happy brought to you by Google. Uh, I knew that they would come up with, or they would would come up void of any lasting significance, which is why I didn't choose to even really scroll through them. Because where is happiness to be found? Happiness is not found in knowledge. Voltaire was a brilliant philosopher of the most profound type, and he wrote at the end of his life, I wish I had never been born. Happiness is not found in pleasure. Lord Byron, the romantic poet, lived a life of romantic pleasure, if anybody ever did, and he wrote, The worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Happiness is not found in money. Jay Gould, the American railroad tycoon, one of the wealthiest men in his day, essentially had all of the money in the world at his exposure. And at his deathbed, he said, said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. Happiness isn't found in position and fame. 
Lord Beaconsfield, who was a British royalty with fame and notoriety. He wrote, youth is a mistake, manhood, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. Happiness isn't found in power and achievement. Alexander the Great, after he was told by his general that he had conquered the last army and was now the leader of the whole entire world, went to his tent and wept and said, there are no more worlds to conquer. All of these men, like most people in the world, they were looking for some kind of lasting happiness, some kind of joy in a broken, bounded world that has limits. And where then is happiness to be found? Well, the answer I heard somebody yell at at the beginning. It's simple, isn't it? It is in Christ alone. And so this is why the Christian alone can obey the commands that we're going to find in our text this morning. Let's read this together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. The Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's read it again. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So as we've come to the conclusion of this letter that we've been working our way through for a while, we've got to this list of, of many different commands, and we've kind of just been chewing over a couple of them each Sunday. Now Paul is passing on this wisdom to the church in Thessalonica. We're going to look at these three commands in our text today. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in every circumstance. Now, at first glance, I think that this could appear to be sort of an unrelated peppering of just like some things that you're supposed to do, right? But if you think about it for a second, rejoicing, prayer, and thanksgiving are all interconnected ideas. These are not disconnected concepts like do your homework, eat your spinach, and clean your room, right? Not really related. No, rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks are all actions that involve turning our hearts, our attention to God. They involve ordering our lives rightly before the Lord. They are each one particular way in which we renew our minds with the truth of who God is and who we are as his creatures, as his beloved children. Rejoicing, then, is a form of prayer, like, like the psalmist just told us, where our hearts exalt in God through Jesus Christ. We experience an incomprehensible happiness that God loves us and has chosen to call us his children, has redeemed our souls from the pit of sin. And we bring ourselves before him then in prayer, reflecting on these things, knowing that he is our heavenly father who loves us and loves to give the goodness of his own presence to his children. And we offer up then prayers of praise and thanksgiving for who God is and what he has done on our behalf. And how can you pray without thanksgiving? I don't think you can do it, actually. And how can you truly give thanks to God without rejoicing in who he is and what he has done, particularly in Jesus Christ? And so I would say to neglect any one of these commands is really ultimately to neglect the whole series of these commands. Because they're so interconnected as to be almost synonymous. And these are acts of worship to God 
that define the Christian life and the Christian experience. We rejoice always in Jesus Christ with happy hearts. We pray incessantly, always seeking out the face of the Father. And we worship in thanksgiving, offering up the praise of gratitude. And as we're going to see as we dive deeper into each one of these commands over the next couple of minutes, these truly are things that we can do always, without ceasing, and in every circumstance. Because the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, it transcends every circumstance, doesn't it? It obliterates every obstacle. It overcomes every challenge. It infuses every moment and every experience if we are right-minded to consider it. And so Christians don't need to Google how to be happy because the Spirit of Jesus Christ is alive in us, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, specifically an everlasting quality of joy. And so we rejoice and we pray and we give thanks because each one of these actions takes our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and places them rightly where they should be, grounding us in the eternal power of God, our Savior. And as that old song says, I love it, as the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So first we see, verse 16, that Christians are called to rejoice always. Now let me admit two things here, okay? First, this is not always easy. It's not, which is why Paul gives it to us in the form of a command, something to work towards, something to strive for, a life of rejoicing. Two, I will admit that joy and happiness are not precisely the same thing. So let's get our categories correct. I've sort of muddled the two. I've used them somewhat interchangeably, but they really aren't the same thing. In fact, I thought this was interesting. If you do a search using the ESV, which is the translation that I use and prefer, uh, it does not have a single occurrence of the word happy in it in the entire New Testament. And I did some looking into the Greek words underlying the different terms like gladness and joy and rejoicing, and really they don't mean happy. But Paul, in his writings, just Paul alone, uses the concept of joy or rejoicing more than 56 different times. So there's not a mention of happiness, but Paul only uses joy and rejoicing a total of 56 times. That's amazing. Now, the reason the Bible doesn't mention happiness is because happiness is not a Christian goal. It's not. And furthermore, the Bible is very honest about how difficult life is, about how challenging it is, about how fleeting things like happiness and security are. The Bible speaks openly and honestly about hardships, about sufferings, about trials, self-denial, And since happiness is really nothing more than a fleeting feeling, an experience that comes and goes with circumstances, happiness is too low of a goal for the Christian. It's not sufficient for us to seek happiness. I think it would be cruel, actually, if Paul had written here, be happy always. Because I'm not. And I couldn't be. Because real human experience is often not a happy experience. But joy, joy, now that's something altogether different, isn't it? It is. It's transcendent. 
Rejoicing is the outpouring of a heart that has come to find joy in the eternal one, Jesus Christ. Joy is a gift that God gives to us through His Word and through His Spirit. And the result of that gift, it's, it's, it's rejoicing. It's, it is the exclamation of His greatness. Joy is what we experience when we are doing the will of God, eager to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And rejoicing is what pours forth from our hearts when we know that God is well pleased with us. Joy is what comes from understanding you are a beloved child of the Most High God. Christians may not always be happy, but they can always be full of rejoicing. And we have two exceptional examples of this, don't we? I mean, I could give you myriads throughout history, but we don't need to go looking far. The first is Paul himself. Look back at chapter 1, verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians real quick. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus, for you received the word in much affliction, yet with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The reason why Paul commends them here is because they imitated both Paul and Jesus, who through affliction and suffering and hardship that assailed them continually, they remained joyful. Paul says in Philippians 2.17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. What he means is that even if his own life is spent to the point of death or exhaustion for the work which God has called him to, he will rejoice in that. Paul learned that regardless of his circumstances, whether it was shipwrecks or spiritual affliction, persecution or abandonment from friends, grief or anxiety, he learned that the Christian can truly always rejoice, which is why he places this expectation upon his friends in Thessalonica, to live a life of rejoicing. And Paul isn't making this up. He's just looking to Jesus where he learned this. Another great example that we have, Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that Jesus saw the suffering of the cross as a great joy to be endured. That's not to say that Jesus was a masochist who loved to be brutally beaten or falsely accused or treacherously betrayed or scornfully mocked or ruthlessly murdered. That's not what brought him joy. Of course, the experience of those particular things brought him no joy. But to be faithful to the Father, even through trials and afflictions, to save a people for his great name, to be praised as the good shepherd, to be the redeemer and lover of mankind, to glorify God the Father through the plan of salvation, those things led Jesus to rejoice in the suffering of the cross even if he, in the midst of them, longed for a different set of circumstances. Do you see? James even goes so far to say, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that those things drive you to God. 
And all of this is super important for three reasons, okay? First, because there's this strain that calls itself Christianity. Let's just say a strain of Christianity that is heresy. And and, and it claims that uh, when you're living the good life, the favor of God is upon you. That when God is pleased with you, life looks like health, wealth, and easy abundance, free of suffering and free of trials. And only when our life looks like that is God pleased with us, and only in those kinds of circumstances can we rejoice and give God praise. But true Christians, they cry out, circumstances be damned. I will praise my God that he has found me worthy to bear the weight of affliction like my Savior bore it for me. To bear the scorn and reproach of Jesus, God has found me worthy to carry that. And I will look beyond whatever this life throws at me, the circumstances of the moment, and I will place all of my hope and trust in God alone. I will rejoice because I am a child of God. And if Jesus suffered, then I too, in following him, will joyfully suffer. I will claim the truth that favor with God is not proven in possessions or in an easy life or circumstances, but it was proven for us on the cross once and for all, God's favor. And if my Lord and my Savior counted the suffering of the cross as a joy, then I too will rejoice in my God whether he sends me good or whether he sends me bad. He has already given me himself. And that's sufficient. That's sufficient. Now, the second reason this is important is because we can rejoice in hope, even in those circumstances. I heard a saying recently that I love, I think maybe I've mentioned it before, and, and it's very simple. It says, all is well because all will be well. All is well because all will be well. We can rejoice in whatever our circumstances are now because we know how the story ends. Evil is vanquished. Christ is king. Salvation is here. My Redeemer lives, and I will stand with him on the day that he returns. When the angels sang over the shepherds in Bethlehem, one of them proclaimed, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. And so we rejoice always because we have a Savior, we have a hope, we have the one who is Christ the Lord, and we know that he is mighty to save, that the victory belongs to God. Circumstances ebb and flow, they come and go, but our God in his being is eternal. Always good, always faithful always gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And we rejoice because we are secure in Him forever, already, regardless of the current circumstances. Third, this is important because it reminds us that we can rejoice always because we have the spirit of joy alive within us. Paul did not will himself into rejoicing during shipwrecks and hardship, during starvation and public floggings. He didn't like clench his fists 
and grind his teeth and force himself to be joyful. That's not how it worked. He flung himself upon the mercy of the Holy Spirit who always leads the people of God in triumphant joy. And if Christ endured the cross with joy and Christ Jesus has given us his spirit that we might be fully equipped for every good work just as he was, then we too can endure whatever this life might lay upon us with the same joy that he endured the cross. Now, I want to say again, because you need to understand this, it is actually possible for Christians to rejoice always. Do you believe that? Do you accept what the Scriptures teach here? This is not an empty promise. This is not an impossible standard. It is true for those of us who have the Spirit of God alive within us. And it's true only for us. I got a chaplain call this last week, and I was sad to arrive on the scene. It was in the morning, and I found a man in his 70s just weeping over the death of his wife. She had died suddenly that morning in their bedroom. The night before, he had cooked her a special meal because it was their anniversary, 41 years of being married together. And now, 12 years later, he was devastated like I hope any one of us would be at the loss of somebody like that that we love. But the fact remains, for the Christian, even in the tears of death, we can rejoice, right? We can cry out with the Scriptures, O death, where is your victory? My God is greater. O death, where is your sting? You have been made impotent by my Lord. Circumstantial happiness will definitely elude us in the moment when we are shedding tears over the loss of somebody that we love like that. But the joy of the resurrection, the rejoicing of our salvation, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, on dark days, what else do we have? But I would also say on days of bright sunshine, what else do we have? On the brightest of days, All we have is Christ. And on the worst of days, all we have is Christ. And we rejoice because Christ is all we need. We need nothing else. And so I ask you, would people describe your life as a life of rejoicing? When people look at you, do they see this fruit of the Spirit? Joy, incomprehensible, inexplicable just emanating from you and everything you do, everything you say, everything you seek, every word that comes out of your mouth, would people say that, that if, I, if I could think of one word to describe that person, it would be joy? Or would they honestly say, you know what, you're a Christian, but joy, I didn't, I didn't even know that was like a Christian thing. Next, we're called to pray without ceasing. And I think our intuition tells us this cannot mean what it seems to mean, okay? Uh, In other words, I think we intuitively know. Paul is not telling us to sit every day in your chair with your eyes closed and your hands folded and your head bowed and just pray like a monk. Uh, I would agree if that's what your intuition is telling you. The Bible also assumes that we will work diligently. It assumes that we will raise children, get married, that we will eat, 
that we will be brothers and sisters with all the responsibility that those kinds of relationships come with. So it cannot mean you must sit in a chair all day with your head bowed and your hands folded and your eyes closed to pray, which means that this verse demands we develop a deeper theology of prayer. And I would say that first we need to understand that Christian prayer is not like pagan prayer. Although I would say tragically it often deteriorates to that. Let me expound. See, Paul understood that his audience here was mostly made up of pagan converts. And actually, pagans had a theology of prayer. Pagans prayed regularly. If you were here way back at the beginning of the series, I mentioned all the temples that are in the city of Thessalonica. And so Paul has to talk about prayer and, and, and uh, chop off the pagan worldview that, that goes with that prayer. And this is why Paul inserts the command to pray without ceasing. Do you notice this? In between rejoicing always and giving thanks in every circumstance. This, this would have been a revolutionary idea to the pagan. This would not have been a concept they would have understand. And this is the difference between pagan prayer and Christian prayer. Let's go a little further. Pagans pray. Non-Christians pray. I hope you understand that. I think a good example of this is actually The Simpsons. Maybe you've seen the episode where uh, Homer finds himself in some trouble and he cries out, Jesus, Buddha, Allah, I love you all, right? Covering his bases. Even though he's a godless man, he cries out in prayer in hopes that maybe one of these deities will hear him and help him. And pagans prayed regularly. But their prayers consisted of rituals, phrases, and literally magical mantras that were meant to manipulate the deity, the gods, into doing the will of the pagan who's praying. And prayer throughout all of human history has been largely seen by humans as an effort to get God to do my will, to do what I want, to persuade God to move, to convince him that I am worthy of having my demands met. Pagans pray so that God will do something for them. But this is not so for Christians. Christians pray because God has already done everything for us. Our prayers are a response to what God has already done. And yes, we ask God to deliver us from evil. We pray that he would provide our daily bread. We ask that his kingdom would come, that he would forgive us our sins. But all of those things work their way into our prayers because we understand that God has already proven to us his care for us, his love for us, his concern for us that we are his precious children, that he will supply every need that we have once and for all, that he has delivered us from the evil one. We pray because his prior work through Jesus Christ proves to us that he already cares. He loves us. And so here's what you need to understand. You can and you should let your requests, whatever they may be, be known to God. But the kind of prayer that you should pray unceasingly is a prayer of communion with God the Father that I think looks first and foremost like thanksgiving, gratitude, rejoicing. This is the ongoing action of reaching out to God with your mind and your heart, potentially with your eyes open, even in the middle of 
I don't know, an Excel spreadsheet at work or a meeting that you're in. It's the ongoing action of reaching out to God with your mind and your heart, not to manipulate God to do your will, but so that you might just know Him more intimately, to do His will, that He might impress upon you His love for you, how pleased He is when you do obey His commands. This is the ongoing, the the kind of prayer Paul's talking about here is the ongoing daily, moment-by-moment cultivation of a real intimate relationship with God, the God of eternity. It's the kind of fellowship that a bride shares with her husband when she forsakes all other lovers to give her whole heart and whole life to the one that she is betrothed to. This kind of prayer, it's the daily, ongoing stream of conscious conversational praise directed towards God. And see, if prayer is merely asking God for stuff, like how long can you really do that before you're just bored? It doesn't last long for me when I fall into that trap. But if our prayers are an effort to seek God, to know him, to commune with him, that we might have fellowship with the infinite God of eternity— How long could you plumb the depths of that relationship without ever being exhausted? If prayer is defined by us pouring out thanksgiving and rejoicing, delighting in our eternal omnipotent God, how can we ever exhaust the everlasting riches of reasons to seek his face in praise? We can't. And if praying without ceasing sounds intimidating to you, if you you look at this and you're like, I don't know that I can get there, I I think that's too far of a stretch. I suggest to you that your problem is you don't actually know God very well. That's the starting place. You have kept him at a distance, far from you. You've not cultivated your relationship with him enough yet to know the depths of praise and rejoicing that he deserves. You've not taken a deep breath to dive deeply into the riches of his glory, to mine the treasures of his goodness and his love. You've not yet experienced the joy that comes when your heart turns to him constantly, continually. You've not yet come to know sufficiently how good he is to you. Because if you knew God as he is, you would not be able to stop reaching out to him in prayer. You couldn't help yourself from saying to him, God, I want more of you. Give me more. I rejoice in all that you have given me already. You wouldn't be able to keep yourself from pouring forth on unending prayers of praise to the God who loves you. To pray without ceasing is not a burdensome command. It's like sucking life-giving air into your lungs in order to live. Without it, you simply die. And without a heart tuned to the presence of God, the Christian dies. Finally, we're told to give thanks in all circumstances. And then Paul points out this kind of life is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. I already spent a week in this series talking about the will of God. It was, uh, I don't know, a couple months back. If you search back, I think in chapter 4, you'll find that phrase if you want to go back and listen to it. But this is simply to say, for those of us who are Christians, rejoicing prayer and thanksgiving are God's will for our lives. If you've ever wondered what God's will for your life is, 
Here it is. It's very simple. Please God by rejoicing, always praying, continually giving thanks in everything. But this is a difficult command, isn't it? I think it is. Think back to last week when we looked at verse 15. The command in that verse is repay nobody evil for evil, but always do good in response to evil. That is hard. And now it's compounded in its hardness because we're told to give God thanks in every circumstance. So not only are we supposed to return good for evil when evil comes our way, but we should also do it with like a hop, skip, and a step, rejoicing along the way, giving thanks when people do evil to us. Am I the only one in here that thinks that this is challenging? Friends, I hope you understand how difficult the Christian life is. I want to impress that upon you this morning. And by that, I hope that you take this Christian life seriously. If you're sitting there and you're like, Grady, I don't really know what you're talking about. Like, if you don't think the Christian life is hard, then I submit to you that you're not taking it seriously enough. That you don't, you don't understand the implications of what it means to take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and die in your efforts to follow Jesus. If you think that the Christian life is easy, then you do not understand what the Christian life is. And I despair when I look around and I see people who casually claim the name of Jesus. Because there is no such thing as casual Christianity. There are no casual Christ followers. How can you casually give God thanks in every circumstance? How can you casually, when somebody does you evil, return good to them? Love your enemy, rejoice always, give thanks in every circumstance. These one phrase, like one sentence statements of the Christian life take every ounce of your being. It takes a desperately humble dependence upon Jesus to do any of these things. It takes every effort and it takes a white-knuckled grip upon the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus to carry us. When people are doing evil to me and I'm supposed to repay good, how am I also supposed to give thanks for that? I hope you are getting what I'm driving towards. When life is drowning me, I am supposed to have a thankful heart. When my health fails and provisions dry up and friends and family abandon me and sufferings and trials come, I am supposed to give thanks in every circumstance. Yeah, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. But again, the resources to do this are not found in my willpower. They're not found in my self-sufficiency. They are rooted and grounded as always in Christ alone. I think maybe a, a key to understanding this, giving thanks in every circumstance, is actually found in a brief prayer in Revelation. Revelation eleven seventeen, we get this glimpse into heaven. You don't necessarily need to turn there. But in this glimpse, we are reminded of what is true. And the 24 elders who are around the throne of God, they fall down on their faces and they worship God and they proclaim this. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. 
For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Let me read it again. Revelation eleven seventeen. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, I know that Revelation is a glimpse into the future kingdom of God when it is fully manifested on this earth. But if we could peel back the layers of heaven and eternity right now, do you know what we would see? If we could peek into heaven today, right now, guess what we would see? We would see Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, seated on his throne of power, reigning over all creation and all time and all people and all powers and all authorities, all things in heaven and on earth. Right now. And just like the 24 elders in this verse, if we were given that privilege, we too would fall on our faces and proclaim, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and you reign for eternity. And so when life's circumstances are awful, as bad as they could possibly be, guess what? The Lord God Almighty reigns and we give thanks. When we lose our job, we give thanks because the Lord God Almighty reigns. When we get cancer, we give thanks because the Lord God Almighty reigns. When nations crumble, we give thanks because the Lord God Almighty reigns. When despair descends upon us, we give thanks because the Lord God Almighty reigns. When sin wins a skirmish and we're discouraged and we feel beaten, we actually give thanks because the Lord God Almighty reigns. When brokenness brings us to our knees, we give thanks that the Lord God Almighty reigns. Should I keep going? Now, I want you to understand, we don't give thanks for the awful circumstances, right? You don't need to give thanks when your spouse dies because they died. If you lose a struggle to sin, you're not giving thanks for the sin that you committed, no. We don't give thanks for the awful experiences themselves, but we give thanks for Jesus Christ in every circumstance, Look, if you come to me for comfort in a dark time of your life, after I sit in silence, after I weep with you, after I join you in mourning for the terrible things that you're suffering, after the grieving and after the heartache has been given its proper and appropriate place, I'm going to remind you of what you already know because you heard it today because you already knew it. The Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, has taken his great power and he reigns now and forever. And we who know this truth through the power, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the enduring word of God, we call this to mind then and we have hope like the scriptures teach, it, teach us, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to His purposes. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in this we rejoice and we give God thanks in every circumstance. Let me pray. God, would you teach us to do this? Would you ground our hearts so deeply in the joy of the Holy Spirit, in constant prayer, seeking you with our hearts? Would you ground us so deeply in the truth of your word, the eternal power of our God, the resurrected Jesus, the Lord God Almighty, who reigns now and forever? Would you ground us in these things so that when the tempest comes, we're prepared to give God thanks in every circumstance? Amen.